too, want to welcome the visitors who are with us this morning. We're glad you're here. and invite you to join in and worship the Lord with us this morning. I want to begin by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 2 through 4. These are the words of Solomon. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Do you believe that sorrow is better than laughter? Do you believe that it is better for you to be at a funeral than at a party? These are the words of Solomon, and Solomon, as we know, was the wisest man who ever lived. And so for a message today, I want to continue with our study of the Beatitudes. Today we will be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Several weeks ago, we looked at the first beatitude. The first step towards God is a recognition that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And as we saw, the idea of poor in spirit is frowned upon by our world today. However, it is the first step in becoming a blessed person. The second beatitude, as we will see today, is also frowned upon by our world. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or happy are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The title that I chose for my message today is The Gladness of Sadness. Of sadness. The Gladness of Sadness. So what does the, mo the word mourn mean as we find it in our text? Blessed are they that mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Of the many words that have been translated mourn in our English Bible, Jesus is using the strongest one available. The mourn in our text literally means to cut or beat the chest with grief. It's the deepest sorrow that causes the heart to break. To mourn means to grieve or wail, to lament. It's the kind of grief that overwhelms a person and cannot be hidden. And so it is obvious that in this parable, Jesus is not talking about complainers or moaners or crybabies, but about those who are gripped by grief. The Arabs have a proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. All sunshine makes a desert. And you know the land on which the sun always shines will soon become an arid place in which no fruit will grow. We know that, we know about a desert. There are certain things that only rains will produce. Hebrews 12 talks about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Fruit that can only come 
through personal or through experience of sorrow or personal experiences of sorrow. And so if to mourn is good for us, why does our culture embrace entertainment and pursue pleasures at all costs? The world will do almost anything to avoid sorrow and pain. And even many of us Christians will do almost anything to stifle sadness and turn away from tears. And yet, I believe if we are truly honest, we have to admit the truth of Proverbs 14, 13, that even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. The ability to cry or mourn is a gift from God, and I believe that's true. The anxiety, the pain that we can hold inside our hearts has the potential to poison our entire emotional system if it is not released in tears. And so, if it is for our spiritual and physical good, when Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So today, how should we mourn? What is Jesus teaching? I want to consider four ways that we should mourn. Number one, mourn the losses in your life. Life will bring pain, life will bring suffering, sorrow will come from personal loss. If you haven't experienced it, you eventually will. It's just a part of life. If you would, turn to 1 Peter. I'd like to read two verses from chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 12 and 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. Now the context here is persecution. You know, persecution would certainly be a fiery trial. I'm not trying to downplay that in any way, but there are other fiery trials that come through personal loss that can be just as painful. Peter says, think it not strange, the fiery trial which is to try, which is to try you. Don't run from it. Expect it. You know, sometimes we hear of folks, some personal loss of whatever may come into their lives, and, th and they'll say something like, I just never expected this to happen to me. Well, Peter here says, think it not strange, the fiery trial which is to try you. The Bible has many examples of fiery trials that came through personal loss. And in those lessons we see mourning, we see weeping. And I just have a list here, and I, I just have a few. I mean, the Bible is actually full of 
stories of personal laws. It begins all the way back to Cain and Abel, all the way through the Bible. But I have a list here. The first one, Abraham mourned the loss of his wife, Sarah. It says there in Genesis, I think it's 23, that he mourned and he wept. King David mourned the loss of his rebellious son, Absalom. Absalom, as you may recall, was a problem from almost day one. And later, after he died, David, he repeats over and over, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, would God I had died for thee. And then we have Jacob. Jacob mourned the supposed loss of his son, Joseph. It says he mourned for many days. You remember how Joseph's brothers took his coat and, and uh, put blood on it, and they took it to their father, and they said Joseph had died. And so Jacob, he mourned for his son, it says, for many days. In fact, I don't think he ever really got over it. And then later Joseph mourned the loss of his father, Jacob. And if you read that account, you'll find the Egyptians mourning as well. They mourned for Jacob 70 days. David mourned the loss of his friend Jonathan. Jesus mourned the loss of his friend Lazarus. And there we have that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Job mourned the loss of his children and his possessions. It says in Job 1.20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. The children of Israel mourned the loss of their leaders, Aaron and Moses. David and his men mourned when their wives and families were taken captive. 1 Samuel 33 and 4, it says, So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burnt with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Herod, after he slew all the children two years and younger, the mothers of Bethlehem cried with lamentation and weeping and great mourning. And then we have Hannah, who mourned because she had no child. 1 Samuel 1.10, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Eli thought she was drunk, and he got after her, and her response was, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. And so, from the fall of man, man has suffered, man has mourned over personal loss. And it may be good for us right here to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and just read again what God said to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And I think it would be good for us to have that uh, fresh in our minds as we think about mourning, as we think of personal loss. Uh, turn to Genesis 3. I'd like to read uh, 16 through 19. And this here 
is right after they had sinned, first of all, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, and then he speaks to the the woman, or to Eve, and then he speaks to Adam, and then after that they were driven from the garden. Genesis 3.16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Folks, we live in a fallen world. We live in a cursed world that is full of sorrow. It's full of thorns and thistles. It's full of sweat. And I believe we'll have an opportunity to experience sweat next week. I was looking at the forecast. And, but that's all part of the fall of man. Many years later, after this all took place in the garden, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Well, many years passed, and then one day Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and it says there in Luke chapter Luke chapter 4, it says he stood up to read. And it says there in Luke 4, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, And he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You see, Jesus said, 
Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the progression. And so, as we continue with how should we mourn, number two, how should we mourn? Be sorrowful about your own sin and sinfulness. Blessed are they that mourn, or blessed is the man that is intensely sorry for his sins. And I believe the main thrust of this beatitude is that you and I are to be sorrowful about our sinfulness. You know, several weeks ago, we looked at the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit, we learned, is being totally bankrupt before God. Remember the public, and we, we looked at him and his attitude of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. However, being totally bankrupt before God is not enough. Spiritual brokenness must follow spiritual bankruptcy. Or we could say spiritual bankruptcy should always lead to spiritual brokenness. It's been said that the saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing, a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 38:18, For I will declare my iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. I'd like to read some from Corinthians, actually. I see here I don't have the chapter written down, so I'm not sure exactly what chapter this is coming from, so I'll just read it to you. But Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and uh, he writes, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow worketh repentance, being truly sorry for our sin. And it talks here about the sorrow of the world worketh to death. There is a sorrow that the world has but it doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't move them to action. I'd like to look at Matthew 26. I'd like to look at the account of where Peter denied Jesus. You can turn to Matthew 26. I'd like to read 69 through 75. As we think of this thing of, of, of um, being sorrowful about our own sin and sinfulness, and as we think of godly or sorrow that worketh to repentance, I'd like to look here at the account of Peter. Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was going out into the porch, another maid saw him, 
and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then he began to curse and, sw and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Poor Peter. I don't think he meant to deny Jesus. Peter didn't premeditate denying his Lord, yet Peter denied Jesus. Not once, but three times. You know, so many times we find ourselves right here in Peter's sandals. You know, When Peter recognized what he had done, it says he went out and wept bitterly. Those tears were tears of repentance. Those were tears of godly sorrow that worketh to repentance. You know, when someone repents, they are serious about changing what they've been doing. The word repentance literally means to change one's mind and is often accompanied with tears. Tears of godly sorrow. Tears that worketh to repentance. That is being truly sorry for our sins. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's been said that a person who can no longer grieve over his sin is in a serious condition. The person whose heart is broken is ready to be comforted. The third point I have, how should we mourn? Mourn over the sin, the sorrow, and the suffering in the world. One of our problems that we face today is that we have become desensitized to the problems of the real world. And I think this probably is more of a problem with us older ones than maybe the younger. But for an example, we have seen so many pictures of bloated stomachs of starving children that we are no longer moved by their tragic plight. We've read so many CAM um, brochures and we get a, the little flyers in the mail and, and we, we've, we've, the voice of the martyrs, we, we've read it and we've seen it and to the point that we just, it just hardly does anything to us. Another problem we have as well is we can become desensitized to the gory violence in the news. You know, if you read the news every day, you, you just continually see the shootings, the bombings, the abuse, 
And our world has seen so much violence to the point that many could care less about human life. And you know, we can, we can become that way ourselves. It's so easy. We see so much of it. Another problem that we face due to the wickedness that abounds is so easy to, be, to become desensitized to the truth of God's word. You know, God's word will stand. God's word will stand. Uh, the inspirations, that they sing a song that I appreciate. The, the chorus goes, God's word will stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plans. God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men. God's word will stand. And so the fact is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'd like to look briefly at what Jeremiah had to say about his day. You know, Jeremiah, his day was so similar to our day. You can turn to Jeremiah. We'll look at just a few verses in Jeremiah. The first reference is Jeremiah 6.15, or you can turn to Jeremiah 8.12. It's the same verse, whichever one you get to first. But Jeremiah, he's talking about his day and what he was seeing. Jeremiah says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fail. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Like Jeremiah, we live in a world that no longer blushes at the sins that the Bible calls the sins of the flesh. In Galatians 5, we have a list of sins that our world no longer cares about. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Such like. And even though our world no longer blushes at these things, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact. God's word will stand. The Bible says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Jeremiah, as we know, he was known as the weeping prophet. It seemed like he was the only one who literally wept over the persistent sin and the coming destruction because of that sin. Later on, if you're still in Jeremiah, turn to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And, and just, just, you can just feel the heart of Jeremiah. He says, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. As I thought of that, I had to think of Jesus and how he wept over Jerusalem. If you would like, you can turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem. 
1941. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known even thou, at least in this day, the things which belongeth unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. The word wept, as we find it here in this account, means to burst into tears, to weep aloud, to sob deeply. This was more than just the eyes watering or a tear running down the cheek. Why was Jesus weeping when everyone else was shouting joyfully? What was he seeing that everyone else was missing? I believe Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because they had rejected the opportunity to experience his peace, like it says in verse 42. Because they knew us not the time of thy visitation, it says at the end of 44. He wept because they remained in their lost condition. They had missed their opportunity, and as a result of that rejection, they were facing impending judgment. And so Jesus wept over the city. And so the question for us this morning, are you weeping? Am I weeping? Are we mourning over the things that causes Jesus to weep? Do the things that break the heart of Christ break your heart and my heart? We live in a world that is lost. We all know that. Yet, in our busyness of life, we can forget that people are lost without Jesus Christ. So how should we mourn? The fourth one I have. We mourn with the hope that we shall be comforted. The psalmist said, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comfort is coming. I find the word comfort an interesting word here. The word comfort means to come alongside, to come alongside as an advocate. And I find it interesting that Jesus, in talking with his disciples, he referred to the coming Holy Spirit as a comforter. And I got looking, the same word, uh, comfort, that we find, comforted, that we find in our text. And the word comforter that we find in John 14, 26 comes from the same word. And we know that the Holy Spirit is a comforter. He comes along beside us. He dwells with us. He guides us into all truth. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we think about the promise comfort, I have several truths 
for us to remember when we are filled with grief. And the first one is, is God sees your tears. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, verse 8, Thou tellest my wondering, wonderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? And I found this verse interesting. I did meditate on it a lot. But the fact that God is recording the tears that are shed. Are they not in that book? The psalmist says, God sees your tears. God sees your loss. And I, I came on to a verse in, uh, just last evening as I was working on this, finishing it up. But it, it's an interesting verse. Uh, and I, find it, I found it in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'd like you to turn over there to Luke chapter 20, uh, Luke 16, 25. Now you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar. He laid at the gate of the rich man. It says his body was full of sores. And they must have been oozing because it says the dogs came and licked his sores. And so you can imagine this poor beggar. I mean, just the scum of society laying at this rich man's gate. And did God see that? He did. Look what Luke 16, 25 says. And so let me back up just a bit. Okay, so the rich man, he's in hell, and he's wanting water. And he looks over and he sees uh, Lazarus uh, in the bosom of Abraham, and, and then he, he's calling out for water. Okay, so that's the context here. So we have Luke 16:25. But Abraham said, Son, this is to the rich man, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And there are several things I see here in this verse. And number one is God knew about poor old Lazarus laying by the gate. That wasn't going unnoticed. And the other thing that I see in this is that we can only know comfort in part. We can only know comfort in part on this earth. You know, Lazarus, he knew comfort fully when he got after he died. And so that's something that we can keep in mind. I believe God can bring us comfort through our trials. We know that God is the God of all comfort, but we can only know it in part on this side of eternity. And so let's go on. God, okay, so first of all, God sees your tears. God sees you and your condition. The second one is God draws near to those who grieve. I'd like to read two verses from Psalm. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God, 
uses suffering and sorrow to draw us to himself. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 4 through 7, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. I found a quote that I appreciate. It says that you'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. God uses suffering and sorrow to draw us to himself. The next one I have is we grow faster in hard times than we do in good times. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I'd like for you to follow along as I read from Romans 5. I'd like to read 1 through 5. We know this is true. We know it's true that we grow faster. We grow stronger. That might be a better word in hard times than we do in good. But listen to Romans 5 verse 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. That sounds a little bit like Solomon, doesn't it? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I think that's very clear. Let's go to the next one. Our pain helps us to minister to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherein we ourselves are comforted of God. Isn't that wonderful? You know, there's some things that I really can't comfort people in because I haven't experienced it. But you know, I was able to encourage a man, not this past week, but the week before, who needed a hip surgery. And I told him all about mine and how it went and what I had done. And, and you know, he, he got done. He said, yeah, you know, people have a lot of advice for me, but I wanted to hear it from someone that actually had it done. Makes a difference, doesn't it? It really does. I was glad I could bless him, even though it wasn't that great to go through the surgery. But um, so now I can bless someone else. And so we bless each other. You know, that's part, that's one place. You know, I actually, as I was looking at this last night, I got thinking that a whole sermon could be preached 
on the, the thought of comfort and how God gives comfort and how his word comforts us and how the Holy Spirit is a comforter and how the brotherhood, how we comfort each other. And uh, I didn't realize it was this late. I'm getting long-winded here. I'm going to have to cut off here. Okay, I'm going to bring this to a close. Psalm, 1, Psalm 126, 5 and 6, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bringing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so this morning, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And like I said earlier, comforted, comfort on this earth can only be known in part. And I'd like to just close with Revelation 21, 1 through 5, when we will experience the fullness of comfort, true comfort, eternal comfort. Revelation 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then he turned to John and said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. We'll call for a closing song.